0: Well, good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to be back with you again on this Sunday morning online on YouTube and Facebook. We gather here every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time to worship together, even in this online space. I want to encourage you to settle in, greet each other in the comments, encourage each other. And let's spend some time today continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And picking uh, Jesus' teachings back up again where we left off after our discussion last week about fasting. We're going to jump into Jesus' words as he pivots and really shifts gears again. And I'm hoping that we can begin to see the bigger picture of how this, this sermon that is so central to Jesus' teachings, how it's beginning to really take shape and inform the kind of lives that we're called to live as followers of Christ. Before we jump into the text, I want to invite you as always just to stop. Let's quiet our hearts and our minds and let's say a few words of prayer together. Would you join me? God, we thank you again for this moment, for this time that we have set aside. We thank you for this space that we have, this virtual space to come together. Wherever we might be, on our couches or our front porch or our cars, at our desk, we pray that you would begin to impart to us as a people a sense of calm, a sense that you are drawing us closer to a life that is marked by peace, a life that is marked by uh an absence of worry because we are trusting that you are at work in our lives each and every day. I ask that as we read these words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that you would help tune us in a little bit more today to how we can connect with that sense that you are at work in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount for many weeks now. We're right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon. For those of you who might be joining us, the Sermon on the Mount is, of course, the central teaching in Jesus' entire life and ministry. When we talk about who Jesus was... And what Jesus represented, this really is the core of Jesus' teaching about what it means to live a good and true and righteous life. And so it's our job as Christians, I think, as followers of Jesus, to really soak in this message that we find in Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7. Really try to understand how Jesus lays out the kind of life that is plugged in to the uniquely distinctive power of God. And we have, of course, been starting at the beginning. We began several weeks ago with the Beatitudes. And one of the things we learned from Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus is opening the door for all people, especially those who are on the margins, those who have been ridiculed and outcast those who have been uh, excluded from the seats of power, Jesus says these are the very kinds of people who will represent the power of God. That's the Beatitudes. And from there, Jesus jumped into, in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, a kind of diagnosis of humanity. What are the core problems that we face? How is it that our desires inside of us Our desires to be justified, our desires to be powerful, our desires to have wealth or to be surrounded by people who adore us, all of those vices that rise up in our hearts as a result of fear, as a result of suffering, all of those things that flow from inside of our hearts really are the source of problems that we have in society, the source of our violence towards each other. Jesus really expertly diagnoses that problem in the second half of Matthew chapter 5. And then a few weeks ago, we said Jesus pivoted in Matthew chapter 6 at the beginning of chapter 6 to begin to show us how we can take the core religious practices of Judaism and begin to do the deep work in our hearts that would change us to become more like Christ. And I said those three core religious practices were giving to those who are poorer than we are, right? What Jesus calls almsgiving there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. Also prayer, where Jesus talks about prayer and he gives us the Lord's prayer, that iconic prayer that defines the church's walk alongside Jesus. And then number three, fasting, that it was central to the religious practices of the ancient Near East, not just in Judaism, but in all kinds of expressions of religion, that fasting is one of those core practices. And over the last three weeks, we've really talked about two things side by side, that these three practices, giving and prayer and fasting, are a means by which we can begin to do the deep personal work in our hearts. So that we can address those problems that Jesus diagnoses in Matthew chapter 5. And then the second thing that we've been saying is that those good religious spiritual practices of giving and prayer and fasting, that those good practices can still be corrupted. That when we take these good practices and we use them to create a transaction of power between us and other people that it doesn't solve the problem in our hearts, that it actually magnifies the problem in our hearts. And then religion, however good it might be at its core, religion becomes corrupted into another expression of power and grabbing for money, grabbing for fame and notoriety and putting ourselves and our egos at the center of our own lives. Jesus says that that is what the hypocrites do And he encourages us to not do those things, but to instead approach giving and prayer and fasting from a different place, a place where we are seeking to be transformed from the inside out. Now, I want to pick it up from there and jump ahead a bit in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. This is after Jesus speaks about those core religious, those core spiritual practices And yet again, we see Jesus shifting gears. We have another hinge point in the sermon. Jesus moves away from the diagnosis of the human heart. He moves away from the spiritual practices of deep work inside of us. And now he turns his attention to how we can, as a result of that deep work, how we can be free and liberated in our lives from the things that constrain us. So I want to pick it up there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, and read to you a familiar passage. Hopefully we can see it perhaps with some fresh eyes today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you'll wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Then Jesus, after telling us not to worry, he paints a couple of really powerful images. Verse 26, he says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what are we to wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then Jesus pivots again and says one of the more memorable passages of this sermon. Verse 33, Jesus says, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. And so what Jesus has done here in the sermon is he's moved away from that diagnosis of the problem of the human heart. He's moved away even from the spiritual practices that begin to transform our hearts from the inside. And now he has turned his attention squarely to how we can be free from the things that enslave us. And here Jesus is, of course, talking about worry and anxiety. He says, we ought not to worry about our lives because everything that we need is already here. Everything that we desire, everything that we hunger or thirst for, everything that he says later in these words, everything we strive for is already available to us at our fingertips. if we read back a little bit, if you back up a bit here in Matthew chapter six, one of the things I want you to see is that Jesus actually uses several images to build up to this incredibly important point. So back in verse 19, for example, Jesus utters that familiar phrase, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is the first image Jesus conjures up after pivoting away from giving and prayer and fasting. Jesus, after leaving that topic behind, he says, do not focus on storing up wealth for yourself here on earth. That's all going to pass away eventually anyway. Instead, he says, concern yourself with the treasures that are in heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, in the very next breath, He says another familiar passage, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. So Jesus follows up his his admonition that we not worry about storing up wealth for ourselves in this life and says, listen, if you see rightly, if you see clearly, then you will be full of light, that you will be healthy. But if you see poorly, then you will be full of darkness, you'll be unhealthy. And Jesus, of course, clearly is not talking about literal, physical sight. Right after telling us that we should not worry about becoming wealthy or rich, he says, if you have good vision, if you're able to see life correctly, you will get what I'm talking about. And so this second image, this image of having clear eyes, this image of being able to see the world properly and clearly has something to do with us not seeing the world in a way that induces us to greed, to hoarding wealth, to hoarding power. And if that's true, if it's true that this saying about the eye being clear has something to do with how we see wealth and power, then We should expect that Jesus will continue to talk about that. And sure enough, in verse 24, the third image that he appeals to is about serving two masters. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, here at the end of that verse, he says, You cannot serve God and Money. It turns out that Jesus is, in this entire section of the Sermon on the Mount, he is addressing our need for security, our need for power. Jesus is saying, after we have done the deep work in our hearts by giving, by prayer, and by fasting, that we will finally be free of the thing that so often vexes every one of us. What's chasing most of us, what's hounding most of us, especially in this culture of wealth and accumulation and conspicuous consumption, especially in a culture where we compare the cars we drive with the cars in our neighbor's driveway, especially in a culture where we compare our houses to our neighbor's houses, where we spend time pouring through Zillow to find out whether or not we are living in a good enough house, especially in a culture we pay attention to the logos on our shoes and our t-shirts, especially in a culture that is so obsessed with our external appearance and our social status. Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter and he says, I know, I know that what is capturing your hearts is wealth and money and power. Because as he says elsewhere, that is the root of all evil. The desire to have power, the desire to be utterly free and to have the kind of power that money promises, the power to do whatever you want, to buy whatever you want, to not care what anybody else thinks because nobody can take away what you have. That is the promise of wealth and money. It's the promise of freedom. But Jesus says that that hunger, that desire for wealth and power is not freedom at all. It's actually enslavement. And Jesus, I think, rightly points out that when we are focused on wealth and power and the security that it promises, Jesus rightly points out that we become slaves to worry. We become slaves to anxiety always worried one day to the next whether or not we have enough money, whether or not we have enough in the bank to make sure that we can pay our rent, whether we have enough to secure our futures, whether we have enough to eradicate the existential fear in our hearts that whispers in our ear and says that one day we will be destitute This is the worry and the anxiety that slaves so many of us each and every day. Jesus is here not talking about those who are abjectly poor. Jesus here is not talking about those who genuinely starve from one day to the next. He's talking to all of us. He's talking about the way that worry and anxiety become our lords instead of our servants. And here he summarizes this portion on the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to worry in that way. Instead, he says, going back to verse 33, if you quit striving for those things, if you quit striving for money and wealth and conspicuous consumption, if you leave those things behind and you strive instead, for what is good and right and true, if you seek after the kingdom of God, then all these other things will fall in line. And that is, of course, what we talked about two weeks ago when we unpacked the Lord's Prayer. We said that these concerns for material needs, these concerns for our everyday basic needs for survival is absolutely important. It's a matter of spirituality that when we pray to God, we are praying for our daily bread. We're praying for right relationships. We're praying for the ability to successfully navigate the potholes of life, but that all of those things are subordinated under our first concern, our ultimate concern for the kingdom of God. And I also said two weeks ago, And we have to be careful about that concern because it's so easy to turn God and God's kingdom into another commodity that we seek to own and hoard and control. So instead, Jesus is saying that rather than pursuing that kind of power that's represented by money or wealth, that our concern should be first to pursue the kingdom of God. And some of you might remember a few months back, we did a whole series on some of the kingdom parables. We talked about what those kingdom parables mean. And we talked about that familiar phrase that begins so many of those parables that says, I tell you the truth, the kingdom of God is like, and Jesus goes on in those parables To unpack these images from nature, these images from agriculture that paint the power of God, the kingdom of God, as something entirely and utterly different than the way that we think of power. I said that when Jesus compares the power of God to a seed that is planted that breaks open and then slowly grows into a bush and then into a tree that provides shelter, I said that that, that is a very different kind of power and the power we normally think of when we imagine kings and kingdoms. Remember, when we think of kings and kingdoms, we tend to think of money and armies. We tend to fantasize about being kings or queens ourselves and having limitless resources at our disposal. But Jesus says that God is not that kind of king and God's power is not that kind of power. Jesus says God's power is more like the power of a tree that grows slowly over time and someday becomes big enough to shelter us. Jesus said God's power is more like the wind. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but we feel its effects. In other words, God's power is the slow process of growth and maturity. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing right here in this passage. Because right before he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be given to you, he gives us these two incredible images that are just like the kingdom parables. He says, look to the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, and yet they have all that they need. He says, look to the lilies of the field. They don't sow or spin, but they are clothed in majesty. In other words, we don't have to worry and fret about God's goodness and whether we will have the things that we need because we can lean in instead to the power of God the slow, good processes of God that have ensured that we have all that we need around us, that we don't have to fight for our security, that we don't have to kill for our security, that we don't have to treat people with contempt for our security, but instead, like the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, we can simply cooperate, cooperate, with the good things that God brings along in life. Jesus is painting a very different picture of human life in this sermon. It's a picture of human life that doesn't fight, and compete, and kill in order to get what we want. Instead, Jesus is painting a picture of human life that cooperates with God's processes, that leans with trust and faith into the good things that God brings. And if we do that, if we do that, then all these things will be added to us. And that's my prayer, that we would become people who know how to live this way. That we would have done the deep work in our hearts, through our spiritual practices, to become the kinds of people who live a life that is full of goodness and abundance because we've learned how to cooperate with the goodness of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for these passages. We thank you for these words, these images that so challenge us and inspire us to turn our hearts in a different direction. I pray today that those of us who are tired and weary from having to fight and wrestle and strive and seek after false security, that you would teach us to become people who can breathe and rest, trusting in your goodness and trusting that you are unfolding your processes of life so that we can cooperate with you. We pray that you would teach us those skills teach us to trust you, and teach us to see
1: the good things that you've already given us. We pray all this in Jesus'
0: name. Amen.
1: Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is CJ, and I have a few quick announcements here for you this morning. Uh, before you leave, thank you for joining us here on the online gathering of the Oceanside Sanctuary Uh Church Ray here. We love this gathering online and giving you the opportunity to be here. If you are new to the Oceanside Sanctuary, we'd love to meet you virtually. Um, You can reach out to us at the oceansidesanctuary.org website backslash connect, and that will put you in touch with our team. Homelessness is consistently ranked as one of the highest concerns among residents here in San Diego County. But what causes homelessness? What other social problems are impacted by it and what can be done about it? We would love for you to join our Justice Works team for a live stream panel discussion with local experts on the social crisis as we begin to explore how our church can help solve the problem. You can RSVP by clicking the link below and we'd love for you to be part of that Homeless Learning Lab coming up on October 26th at 6 30 p.m. and that's going to be on the Zoom. Our next book club is coming up Thursday, November 4th at 6:30 p.m. The title of this book is Sino Stranger: A Memoir and Manifesto of Revolutionary Love by Valerie Carr. This month, it's the first Thursday of the month, like every other month, 6:30 p.m. once again and i think you're going to really enjoy this book as the author reclaims love as an active public and revolutionary force that creates new possibilities for ourselves our communities and our world it helps us imagine new ways of being with each other and with ourselves so that together we can begin to build the world that we want to see and that we want to live in simply rsvp at theoceansidesanctuary.org backslash calendar once again that's coming up on november 4th 6.30 p.m. Also coming up in November, Tuesday, November 9th, mark your calendar, 6.30 to 8 p.m. In person, do you believe in limiting unnecessary use of force amongst police officers within our community? If so, your attendance would be loved and needed on November 9th, 6.30 p.m. where we will be meeting with Oceanside Police Chief Fred Armijo and three of his captains to discuss the urgent need for mandatory de-escalation policy within the department. You can RSVP for this event um, on the link below. And then finally, we'd love for you to support the mission here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, which is a 501 C3 nonprofit and survives on gifts from people just like us to support what uh, this great church is doing in the community. You can go to theoceansidesanctuary.org backslash give portion of that website. And that is a simple place to partner with the mission here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, look forward to seeing you in person if you can, when you can at the Oceanside Sanctuary on Sunday mornings. And have a great week, everybody.